Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 2nd edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skarn, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that a single payment of temporary disability for a medical legal exam does not start the 104-week TD cap. Here's what happened in the published opinion of Meeks Building Center versus WCAB and Salim Najjar. Mr. Najjar worked as a paint sales associate at Meeks Building Center and sustained a cumulative injury to his low back, neck, and left shoulder. After the injury, he continued to work unrestricted at his usual job activities. Zurich American Insurance Company sent Mr. Najjar to a QME examination in 2007. At that time, Zurich paid Mr. Najjar slightly over $64 to reimburse him for wages lost due to attending this evaluation. The QME did not take Najjar off work or impose work restrictions. Two years later, in 2009, Mr. Najjar was determined to be temporarily disabled and restricted from work. Accordingly, Zurich began making temporary disability benefit payments, <clears throat> which continued through September 8, 2009. At that point, Zurich ceased TD payments, claiming that the 104-week limitation had commenced with the payment made at the time of the QME exam two years earlier. The work comp judge agreed with Zurich and terminated the TD benefits at that time. However, the WCAB granted Mr. Najjar's petition for reconsideration and rescinded the findings of fact and order. <clears throat> the Court of Appeal in the published opinion affirmed the WCAB. The court said that the employer's obligation to pay TD benefits is tied to the employee's actual incapacity to perform the tasks usually encountered in one's employment. The obligation ends when the injured employee either returns to work or is deemed able to return to work, or when the employee's medical condition becomes permanent and stationary. At the time of the QME exam, Mr. Najjar's injuries had not caused any temporary disability. That is, his injuries had not incapacitated him or restricted him in any way from performing his usual work duties, and he was not missing work because of his injuries. The costs and expenses incurred incidental to the production of a medical legal report to prove or disprove a contested claim are medical legal expenses. There is no requirement that an employee be disabled in order to qualify for these medical legal benefits. There need not even be a finding of an industrial injury for the worker to qualify for medical legal benefits, as even an unsuccessful claimant receives medical legal benefits as reimbursement for his costs. The one-time payment is clearly not temporary disability benefits that triggers the cap under Section 4656. In the panel decision of Jose R. Ramirez versus Parking Concepts, the WCAB reviewed an award of attorney fees in excess of $27,000 awarded to an applicant attorney as a result of a violation of the prohibition of the ex-party communication rules with a QME. Labor Code Section 4062.3 in general prohibits ex-party communications with an AME or a QME and provides for sanctions and attorney fees for violations. In the 2010 case of Alvarez versus WCAB, 
The Court of Appeal held there were no exceptions to the clear statutory prohibition against ex-party communications with a PQME, noting that even a single violation initiated by a QME can result in discipline. The absence of prejudice to a party from an ex-party communication is not a consideration when determining whether a violation occurred. Now, in the panel decision of Jose Ramirez, it was found that he sustained an injury to his psyche in 2005 while employed as a parking lot supervisor by Parking Concepts. The parties subsequently settled applicant's claim in 2011 by compromise and release agreement for $8,000. However, during the course of litigating that case, the defendant sent an advocacy letter directly to the first appointed QME in violation of provisions of the labor code. Following a hearing on the ex-party communication, the work comp judge then ordered a new panel. The defendant requested a hearing when the parties could not agree on a joint letter to the second QME, but also sent its own advocacy letter in violation of the rule against ex-party communications to the second QME. The work comp judge therefore ordered a third QME. Following the examination by the third PQME, applicant objected to the fact that the first PQME report was sent to the third QME in violation of Administrative Director's Rule 35E. Thereafter, applicant filed a request for attorney fees as a sanction under Section 4062.3G. Following a trial, the work comp judge awarded attorney fees <clears throat> for over 78 hours of time totaling more than $27,000. The defendants were upset and filed a petition for reconsideration of the award of attorney fees. The Work Comp Appeals Board affirmed the award of attorney fees but questioned the amount of the fee. The panel said that whether defendants' repeated violations were intentional or merely the result of carelessness, its conduct caused delays and necessitated the selection of three QME panels entitling applicant's attorney to an appropriate fee for his discovery related to the efforts. However, the itemization prepared by applicant's attorney covers work performed over four years, but does not on its face establish a nexus between the prohibited communication and the attorney fees. Thus, the case was returned to the trial level for applicant's attorney to provide a detailed description of the work billed with a justification for how each line item is specifically and directly related to the defendant's ex-party communications. And now our fraud report. According to allegations in a whistleblower lawsuit filed by two former employees, Burbank-based Diagnostic Labs provided deep discounts to skilled nursing facilities in exchange for business that could be charged to taxpayer-funded Medicare and Medi-Cal. The suit claims that this was an illegal kickback scheme. Plaintiffs claim that Diagnostic Labs exploited the Medicare and Medi-Cal billing system by charging nursing homes as little as $1 per patient per day for lab and radiology services. These facilities then referred additional outpatient lab tests or x-ray work to diagnostic labs, which billed the federal and state governments the maximum amount government will pay for these services, according to the court documents. 
<clears throat> the case was filed in 2010 and unsealed in November 2011, and the state of California has now joined the litigation. In court documents, diagnostic labs describe the allegations as overblown and say the whistleblowers make the leap that giving a discount equals the intent to induce referrals. The case against Diagnostic Labs was brought under the False Claims Act and a parallel state statute, both of which make it illegal to defraud the government. These laws are increasingly invoked in the healthcare arena. <clears throat> More than 630 whistleblower lawsuits were filed with the Department of Justice in 2011, more than any other year, and an increase of nearly 50% since 2009. More than two-thirds of these cases are related to allegations of fraud related to government health care programs. These lawsuits have produced significant financial results for the federal government. In 2011, the federal government collected $2.4 billion in settlements and judgments from health care cases more than from any other industry. And over the past three years, the government has collected, collected $6.6 billion in relation to health care fraud. A majority of these funds are returned to the relevant federal or state-funded health programs. California contractors publicly praised the news of the arrest of the owners of ANF Engineering, who allegedly committed insurance fraud and denied insurance benefits to an employee's family. ANF Engineering's employee, Jose Villanueva, was killed in a work-related accident. As a result of the company's failure to pay less than $12,000 in workers' compensation insurance premiums, Villanueva's wife and three children will not receive the statutory death benefit. If convicted of the charges, the owners face time in state prison and as much as $710,000 in fines and reparation. Industry officials said that too often legitimate trade contractors lose work to corrupt contractors who underbid jobs and cheat their workers, making it difficult to compete on a fair and level playing field. The California Professional Association of Specialty Contractors fully supports the coordinated work of state agencies involved in investigating illegal contractors. Lawful Contractors established the LEVEL program, which stands for Lasting Effective Violator Enforcement Leadership, to encourage coordinated state and local efforts in leveling the playing field for honest contractors to compete effectively. Two Van Nuys men were sentenced to federal prison for their roles in attempting to fleece Medicare out of about $17 million. Rahagan Dishigen was sentenced to 53 months behind bars in order to pay about $3.1 million in restitution to the Medicare program. His co-defendant, 30-year-old Vahi Dishigen, was sentenced to 46 months in prison in order to make restitution payments of almost $1.4 million. Both men pleaded guilty in March to money laundering and conspiracy charges. The pair were among 10 area defendants charged in 2010 as part of a nationwide crackdown on health care fraud. In the scheme, suspects used the stolen identities of doctors and patients to bill Medicare for procedures that never took place. 
Some of the medical clinics existed only on paper. Eight clinics were identified in the Los Angeles case, and investigators estimated the defendant submitted more than $17 million in phony claims. A total of 73 defendants in California, Georgia, Louisiana, New Mexico, New York, and Ohio were charged in the crackdown that attempted to siphon $163 million from the federal government, according to authorities. Codefendant Pogos Satmian of Glendale is scheduled to be sentenced in September. And in regulatory news, the R Street Institute, a new national nonprofit public policy think tank, released a report card grading the insurance regulatory environments in each of the 50 states. The report card measures states on 14 objective variables. According to the report card, the California insurance regulatory environment received a grade of D, along with Hawaii, Louisiana, Massachusetts, New York, and Texas. Florida was the only state to receive an F. At the top of the list was Idaho, Illinois, Maine, Nebraska, Ohio, Vermont, Virginia, and Wyoming, all of whom received a grade of A. Vermont received an A+, because they had the best property and casualty insurance regulatory environment in the U.S. the entire year. A few points were deducted for the relative size of their regulatory surplus and their lack of anti-fraud enforcement, and for having a modestly sized residual auto insurance market. One surprising conclusion of the report was that for most states, insurance regulation is in effect a profit center. States vary in how they allocate funding to their insurance departments. In 23 states, 100% of the department's revenues comes from regulatory fees and assessments. Fees and assessments account for more than 90% of the budget in eight other states and for more than 80% of the budget in an additional six states. Other states draw on a combination of fees and assessments, fines and penalties, general funds and other sources. Georgia, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania are the only states that do not directly draw any of their revenues from the fees and assessments they levy. In each case, drawing the bulk of their operating funds from the state's general fund. The 50 states, Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia, spent $1.24 billion on insurance regulation in 2010, but collected double that amount in regulatory fees and assessments from the insurance industry. State insurance departments also collected $63.5 million in fines and penalties and another $1.22 billion in miscellaneous revenues. States separately collected $14.82 billion in insurance premium taxes. Altogether, of the $18.58 billion states collected from the insurance industry last year, only 6.7%, only 6.7% was spent on insurance regulation. The remaining 94% of monies collected from the insurance industry was used by the states for non-insurance-related matters. <clears throat> and in medical news, the federal government is launching a pilot program to make it easier for doctors, pharmacists, and emergency departments to access patients' prescription drug records. 
the new program is aiding to stem a rising tide of a rising tide of deadly drug abuse. Overdoses from prescription drugs are now the leading cause of accidental deaths in the country, eclipsing car crashes and the combined impact of cocaine and heroin abuse. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Health IT Division will introduce the pilot program in Indiana and Ohio. 49 U.S. states authorize such prescription drug monitoring programs which collect information from pharmacies and practitioners. But doctors in many states hardly use the data because of difficulty in navigating through the information. Marty Allian, a senior director of the Indiana Board of Pharmacy, who worked with HHS to design the pilot program, said it would merge the government data with electronic health record systems already used in doctors, practitioners, offices, and in pharmacies. Providers have complained that existing data is often available only after a lag of up to 30 days. The new system improves on that technology to provide real-time data. The program in Indiana will encourage emergency department staff to access patients' prescription history directly through an electronic management system already used in hospitals across the state. HHS said that in some states, emergency providers account for 25% of all controlled substance prescriptions. In Ohio, the program will test a new drug risk indicator and its impact on decision-making in clinics, hospitals, and doctor's offices. And in financial news, a new WCIRB report says that workers' compensation carriers lost $2.3 billion in 2011. The report says that the insurers collected $10.4 billion in premiums but paid out $7.7 billion in support benefits and medical care and had expenses of $5 billion and thus lost about $2.3 billion. Industry experts say the report fuels the campaign of insurers to increase premiums and suggests that they may form an alliance with unions, medical providers, and attorneys for injured workers to overhaul the workers' compensation reforms enacted eight years ago. That would create conflicts with employers who enjoyed sharp premium reductions after the reforms were enacted. The new report said that losses on workers' compensation coverage were greater than those experienced in 2010. The report does not include data from large private and public employers who typically self-insure for job injuries rather than purchase insurance. The combined loss and expense ratio for calendar year 2011 was 122%. The year before the combined loss and expense ratio was 117%. And in other news, the Spanish version of the DWC fact sheet, now available on the DWC website, in April, the DWC posted an updated English version of the fact sheet on its website. The document provides answers to questions about qualified medical evaluators and agreed medical evaluations. Only the text of this fact sheet E, which is available in PDF and Word format, is required for compliance with the labor code. The division has now posted the Spanish version of this fact sheet 
and is providing a grace period until August 1st to use both the English and Spanish versions of the revised fact sheet as required for issuance of benefit notices. The updated fact sheet, including the text-only version, is available in English and Spanish and can be found on the fact sheets and guides for injured workers link on the Information and Assistance Unit web page. And with that, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.